Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, folks. I just wanted to jump in at the beginning here and give you a bit of a trigger warning for this episode's short story. So a section of this story is going to feature a bit of torture, um, and it's it's not pretty. Uh, there's going to be a slightly more in-detailed description of what it's going to be down in the description, so if you don't want spoilers, don't look at that, but if you're afraid uh, people being in significant pain um, will upset you, please read that before you listen further, because... I don't want you feeling uncomfortable or upset, and I want you to enjoy this episode. Um, yeah, so I hope you enjoy this one, because I particularly love it. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Suppose she was only yelling because she was worried about me. Aeon aside. Still hurts though. Yeah, still hurts. Aeona gazed out over the soft, swaying grass fields, waving in the breeze like hair underwater. The hazy white sun sunk below the horizon, retreating from the deepening violet sky. The fields stretched on for miles, shifting from velvet grass to golden wheat to feathered maize. Eventually the rows of heavenly fields shifted to orchards, till the vines became trees and the trees became mountains. It flowed into the distance like a river, so far they could almost see the curve of the planet below them. Thin plumes of smoke twisted from nearby houses, up into the evening sky, carrying the scent of fresh bread and simmering honey up to the roof on which they perched. Aeona tucked a tuft of wheat behind their ear and shut their eyes, laying back on the blanket that clung to the roof tiles. Harold Loden said the funniest thing the other morning, chimed Locke, stretching out to gaze up into the deep purple expanse. He said that an auger needn't fear lies, for when he speaks, they become truth. Luck chuckled to himself. What an odd thought, don't you think? Aeona frowned, fluttering their eyes open. Sounds mad as self-righteous to me. Luck shrugged, fiddling with a loose thread on his robes. I suppose. I could believe many a thing he said to be untruthful, though I haven't the proof to refute him. They fell again to silence as their conversation was spoken by the world around them. The warm harvest breeze blew through the grass like a woodwind, 
and the far-off thunk of an axe into tree trunks mingled with distant whistling, a tune and rhythm she carried on the wind. We till the ground and far below, through beating heat and freezing snow, for when the sun and soil meet, we take our tools back home. Aona hummed the tune whisked away by the night air. I haven't heard that one before, said Locke. Dad used to sing it. They started. While he worked in the mines. I don't remember the rest anymore. They strained and sat up, curling their arms around their legs, chin on their knees. They shivered as the breeze bristled the back of their neck, where their hair was pulled up in a bun. They pressed their forehead into their knees, shutting their eyes tight. Mum caught me whistling the other day and told me off, said Locke, while I was making tea. For whistling? Iona said. Yeah, she said that the town folk's songs fill my head with nonsense and that I need to focus on my studies. He sighed. That's a load of rubbish. Whistling hasn't even got words. It's just music, and music ain't nonsense. That's what I told her, Locke replied. I said, Mother, Harold Loden teaches me compositions every third rotation, and he said that the classical melodies free my mind for more clear foretelling. But she pointed her finger at me and said that no composer wrote whistling tunes, and if I were to be heard whistling again, I'd have to eat my homework for dinner and face Harold Loden without my papers. He lifted his hands to cover his face and let out a heavy sigh. <sighs> Sometimes I find her awfully regretful. Aona laughed, turning to bump Locke with their elbow. I'd be careful. Regret will earn you at least a half-term essay for supper. Locke snickered, picking at them through his fingers. <sighs> Maybe they'll allow me an excursion form for dessert. Aona laughed and rested their head in their hands, looking at Locke, who despite gazing up at the sky, seemed downcast. That sounds awful, Locke. I wish I could do your lines for you. You really don't. He said. Last week I had to translate all of Shiskov's teachings into Malforth and back. My hand was so cramped it turned purple. Aeon shook their head. Can't you run away? Locke tucked in his legs and sat up, cross-legged. Oh, if only. I couldn't even form the thought. However exciting augury is, it has the downside of maliciously perceptive professors. He sighed. <sighs> If I so much as packed a sock, Loden would be knocking on my door. Aeona shuffled back to sit in line with Locke. They pressed their forehead to his shoulders and embraced him. He lifted an arm and placed it on theirs, and they sat quietly. Hey, look, shooting star. Keeping their head on his shoulder, Aeona twisted to look up at the sky, like a school of fish, pinpoints of crystal light danced across the violet space. They fell like gentle rain in early spring, watering the fields below. Make a wish. Aona smiled. Locke fell quiet for a moment, till his breath slowed, and he tightened his grip on their arm. I... I wish you would leave. Aona sat up, smile fading as they looked at his stony face. I'm... Sorry, you... what? He took their hands, furrowing his brow, and looking them in the eyes. I'm serious, Aona. Leave. Pack up your books, take your watercolors, and hike to the hills. Aona shuffled back, studying his face. What are you talking about? Locke's face was twisted with worry, and it seemed to take all his effort to bring words to his lips. I'm 
I'm not supposed to tell anyone. He started before faltering and dropping his eyes. Look. Aeona said, craning to recapture his gaze. What did you see? He paused, looking to the stars once more. Please, Aeona, can't you just trust me? Aeona frowned, lowering their head. Locke spoke again. There are no words I can say that will remedy what is happening. If I told you the truth, it would only bring you ruin. He gently took Aeona's hand. My friend, I have seen great ill on the horizon. And despite my training, there is nothing I can do to combat it. You must leave if you want to live. He released a heavy breath. But I can't tell you why. Iona studied their hands, his resting on top, and slowly looked up to him. If you want me to go, you have to come with me. Locke sighed, pinching the bridge of his nose. Iona, you know that wouldn't work. They see every step I take, but why would they follow? What business do they have chasing two kids into the wilderness? They held his hands tight. Either we both disappear, they put a hand to his shoulder, or we both fight. They sat in the quiet evening, purple sky darkening above the mountains. Fight, huh? Locke shook his head and set his eyes on the horizon. That's a beautiful fantasy. Heave! Heave! The crash sent the last remaining creatures flying from the surrounding forest. Hull pulled at the knots wrapped tight around the branches. Sturdy, but slow. He clapped the worker between the shoulders. We have no time for dallying. Faster. Yes, Captain. Hull turned to survey the camp, marching toward the silver tent on the far side. All around was the whisper of clay steel blades and the slam of felled trees. He nodded once to himself and parted the curtain. The tent's heavy walls blocked all but the boldest of the white sun's rays, but they were lost in the orange glow of fat candles arranged in arcane shapes around the space. Most of the room was taken up by crates and barrels, but the darkest corner held a construction of wood and metal that sloshed even in its stillness. My Lord Herald? Hull's voice caught in his throat. A long silence followed before a thick bubble broke the viscous surface of the bath, then another, followed by a grey shape coated in the green liquid. His forehead, elongated with age, was draped in white curls that fell over the ancient augur's eyes. Hull started as the deep voice issued from the form. Progress slows. Hull knelt, bowing his face to the floor as the thin auger stood to his full height, reaching for a mottled cloak nearby. I apologize, Harold. Hull said. The men have had trouble with local arracs. They're causing the forest to grow in winding paths. You have informed the locals that they stand in the way of their own salvation. Yes, my lord. It does not seem to sway them. The auger made a grunting noise like the memory of a laugh. Then it must be done. Hull raised his head enough to see the frail form towering over him. My lord? Three of your number will die in the blaze. But any other way, and enough of these Ariks will survive to kill you in your sleep. My lord, I He continued. One flame at either end of the woods. 
and another spreading from the heart of their settlement. Any more would be a waste of your time and mine. Hull pulled to his full height on his knees. These workers have been given the Archon's word to their safety. They all have families The wet hand of the auger shoved Hull's head to the ground, and his mouldering foot pressed his face into the dirt. The deep voice was quiet, with an edge of rage far off. A thousand suns of heat, jarring their skin, needle bled from cancerous weeds, and wheezing at the spores in the air. Those families lucky enough to survive that will see their fallen brethren rise again as hollow ones, filled only with desire to spread, to consume. With the final word, he ground his heel into Hull's skull, sending dirt into the captain's mouth. Hull spat and heaved air into his lungs. Please, my lord, I cannot breathe. The auger groaned again, but lifted his leg and turned away. Hull pushed to his knees, eyes downcast. I apologize. Your visions will be true, Harold Locke. The auger traced a talon over the green pool, not seeing the shriveled face reflected in its surface. Then we are saved. My fellow witnesses. His voice carried over the waiting crowd. Were it not for the circumstances, the amphitheater would have been beautiful. Deep brown wood and set with intricate gold glowed in the flickering torchlight. The sky, revealed in the open-air theater, grew grey with the setting sun. And the circular stage, set with embossed golden tiles, portrayed a fruitful harvest under fearsome mountains. But the gold had now faded, tinted under blood flow and lacklustre cleaning. The grout soaked with red held a rot that refused to release guilt. And around the stage sat the few hundreds that remained, grinning in the rose-gold glow their deep robes, uniform and modest, left little room for shadows as they became a blanket of eager eyes. He spoke to them in a sing-song voice to please the gods. We gather here to see our efforts bear fruit. As each day passes, we step closer to that horizon we chase. And today, as we do all days, we clear one more obstacle from our path. He stretched out a hand, grey and taut, as if the bones had grown too long for the skin. He grinned down at the person kneeling before him, their hands bound and their face bloody. The herald turned and stretched his arms out to the awaiting public, parting his arms like the desperate branches of an ancient tree. He hunched like twisting roots and sneered at the whipping breeze. The fabrics hanging from his gnarled limbs billowed like willow leaves, and his eyes were set deep and clouded. Long have you awaited this day, he called, his footsteps echoing along the tiled stage. And as always, 
Your patience shall be rewarded. A cheer echoed from the crowd, a bellowing, uniform roar. But first, he said, turning to his captive, a cleansing. With an eager step, he lunged forward to grab the kneeling figure by their hair, hoisting them off the ground. They struggled for only a moment, before biting their tongue and snarling at the herald. He drew from his robes a thin golden dagger, sharpened on each side to a razor edge. His captor drew in a sharp breath and shut their eyes tight, but the herald brought them in close and slashed a clump of hair from their scalp. He dropped them to the ground, holding the lock above his head like an enemy flag. Today, they who oppose us will take their place. He smiled. And all shall be just. In a flurry of movement, he hunched over them and hacked away at their hair, letting the clumps fall to the cold floor. He worked feverishly, leaving only a thin, mangled fuzz over their head. When his work was complete, he rose again to the cheers and bellows of the crowd, grinding his foot into the prisoner's ribs. They lay on the ground, panting, suddenly aware of the cold. They shuddered and forced their gaze skyward at the grey sunset and the withering forest just visible beyond the amphitheatre walls. They didn't attempt to hold back tears, but studied the world beyond. Traitor! He raised a hand, silencing the unlockers. As you have attempted to stifle our gifts, he paced around them. We shall take yours. As you have threatened the perfection of our people, we shall make you imperfect. As you... He kneeled down beside them, grabbing them under the chin and forcing their gaze to meet his. ...would steal the future we have worked so hard for. We will ensure you never see yours. He dropped them to the ground and called out once more. Now, the truncheons! A heavy set of double doors off to one side of the stage were thrown open. Wheeled out on a sturdy wooden trolley came a sneering furnace, blistering with hot coals sizzling in its stomach. Sitting in the faded flames, white hot and buried under smoldering coals, were two long iron pokers with tips rounded to bulbs. As the truncheons and their fiery bed were heft toward the centre of the amphitheatre, the crowd roared in glee. A few, children mostly, turned their heads or shut their eyes, only to be deterred by a parent's swift hand or an augur's glare. The herald turned to face his captive, tears flowing down their stony face. This is a kindness, my dear, he said. Sight, in all its capacities, is meant to show us what is ahead. From birth, you were doomed to the present. He leant in close and grinned. And through action, you are doomed to nothing. They broke their gaze from the setting sun and turned to look the herald in the eye. If that is the case, my lord, they spat. I pity the sorry state you live in. Not only are you trapped in the present also, but have cursed yourself to see a future that will never come. You will never see tomorrow. 
and may never savor the present. Yours is a fate worse than blindness. They spat at his feet, and he stepped back. Shaking his head slowly, he stretched both hands to grasp each of the truncheons, the bulbs at their ends glowing white-hot. As he turned to face them, three junior augurs gathered around the captive, two holding back their arms, another bracing their back and head. He tisked as he stepped into place, crowd roaring. They looked to the faces of the onlookers, many cheering, but some, just a few, crying. They looked to the sky and shut their eyes. We'll just have to see about that now, won't we? With deadly precision, the herald thrust forward both pokers and pressed the searing hot metal into the captive's shut eyes. No power of will could counter its searing touch and they let out a soul-dashing scream. The crowd roared, cackling and jeering, almost drowning the screams to silence. The herald pressed harder. The captive, writhing against their grapplers, buckled and wailed, sweat pouring onto the blood-tinted tiles. As they gurgled and whimpered, the herald bore a placid stare into them, twisting the metal and searing the wound. As they convulsed and slackened their shoulders, he slowly withdrew the pokers, setting them to reheat in the furnace. The junior augurs let go their grasp and the captive was released collapsing forward. They crumpled like a rag doll with all strength leached from their muscles. For a minute, they barely breathed. They lay on the tiles as the watching crowd whispered and waited. With an impatient foot, the herald flipped them onto their back. The crowd rippled with gasps and cheers as their cauterized sockets pointed up at the cold night sky. She was a speck on the horizon. This was the only way she could see herself over the hours. She knew that, logically, every step took her closer, but as time wound on, the great tower grew no larger on its hill. Inolka walked the silver desert, a flat expanse of metal worn by unceasing winds. Her legs dripped a steady flow of red into the sand that had bit her her mother's shoes torn on jagged rocks. When the sun reached its peak, Inoka slowed. She kept her eyes peeled for some wily shadow, a crag or valley that had escaped the flat expanse. She had begun to feel blisters rising on her skin, even beneath her shawls, when she heard the sound nearby. A diagonal slash descended below the plateau of steel, a shallow valley bedded with dust blown down from the desert. The sand was cut by a trickle of water as wide as her palm in the centre of the broad ravine. The shadows crawled across the valley as she descended, cloth-wrapped hands struggling to scale the smooth surface of steel. After another hour, 
her feet touched the cooling base of loose soil. She felt the burn of thirst rake at her tongue, but held. Slowly, Inolka knelt and placed her hands in front of her. She edged toward the trickle of water, feeling the sand before her. The fine grains of metal were packed in tight below, but at points she felt a sparseness. She kicked her foot out at these parts, and watched the iron filings rush down to fill the hollow below, formed under the fossilized branches of an ancient tree. The entire valley was in shadow by the time she reached the water, the sun's crown just visible behind the wall. Still in the distance the grey tower stood, its peak split into smaller curved aspects like a fork. The water was hot but tasted like God's gold to an Anolka. She would have cried for the relief but knew better. She drank until she could taste the sanguine tinge in the water, then until she couldn't bear any more. Her mothers had told her the grave nature of the water, but the old wisdom hadn't saved them. She would never live long enough to feel its effects. The Herald of Nightfall is what woke her. Gusts of wind lashed across the sky, sending the foot of a dune cascading into the valley. Inolka dragged her senses about her and leapt to the far wall, digging her bare fingers into the still warm metal. The sand cascaded into the wall from above, filling the valley around her. She climbed, the heavy waves of steel dust washing down on her back, slicing thin lines through cloth and flesh alike. She kept her head close to her chest, reaching high above her and heaving her body behind. The wind screamed overhead, down from the mountains and across the plains, pushing the desert into the narrow crevasse on top of her. Inolka pulled her arms up over the ledge, spitting shards from her mouth. Her eyes were sealed from coagulated blood and metal, which dripped down her cheeks and off her chin. When she rubbed her eyes clean, her march continued. She took one look at the distant tower, shrouded in shining wind, and marked its place in her mind. Then she covered her face in her scarves. If she'd had the time, she would have kicked herself for her stupidity. The day was blister-hot, but the mothers called the desert night the hour of knives. The gusts came in bouts, waning long enough for Anolka to hazard another glance, but each time followed by another wave of cutting sand. When her shawl was worn through, the sand cut at her legs. When she could no longer walk, she crawled. She muttered with mouth closed, forming the words with all but her swollen lips. You bear the final history. You are the world now. Her skin stung in waves with the beat of her heart, stabbing warmth nestling in her joints with every movement. The pain was so much and her thoughts so loud that she did not notice when it stopped. The first thing she was aware of was a pressure on her back, pulling her to her feet. Then, a strong blast against her. Water. A stream of freezing water across her body, washing the sand away. Hands pulled her scarf free from her head, and more water poured over her face. 
The water did not stop, even as the last sand was washed away and her wounds flowed freely. She noticed how she shivered, and heard language being spoken around her. After a time, she opened her eyes, just a touch. The light was blinding, reflected off the polished stone floor in a large room. Stone. Inolka fell to the floor, out of the stream of water. She ran her fingers across the grey surface, feeling the tiny holes and bumps. Then she noticed the figures, three of them, shifting on their long feet above her. Her clothing was drenched in the clear water that flowed, unending from a pillar in the centre of the room, and she shivered. She had no memory of being cold before this. One of the figures stepped towards her, long grey hair draped over its face. What are you? She stepped back. It turned its long head toward the others, then back to her. It seemed to ponder its own mouth before speaking in perfect, unaccented tongue. You're here to tell us, Inaka. Or shall I? I'll go first. I think you usually go first, and we'll flip it up. Sounds good. Um, I we just did a very song-heavy episode. Yep. Uh, before this one, which was our space shanties one, and mm-hmm. I'm gonna hear you with some more songs. Good. Because I'm oh, feeling. We were supposed to listen to a song before this. I completely forgot. Oh, well, we'll listen to it afterwards. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, so you know that song that's like in all of the slapstick comedies, and you're like, this is actually a great song, but they're using it as a joke in the Hall of the Mountain King. Oh, in great the Hall of the Mountain song, King, yeah. Beautiful. Incredible I love song. it. It's a very good song. It's so good. So, hey, what's. Can, who's the Mountain King? So, okay, this is interesting because. One of my favorite kids shows um, by Guillermo del Toro, who I've been I've, talking about I've a lot today. I've heard that name, yeah, many uh, times. Troll Hunters um, is about... I, I know that one. Yeah, the kids I haven't show. seen it, but I it's know good. all of it. Um, is about trolls. Uh, and in Troll yeah. Hunters, in the Hole of the Mountain King, is about someone going to see the king of the trolls. Oh, hell yeah. Um, and there's a character, a changeling, who sings the song. And she's like, I remember seeing it as a kid. Bef- and then... Uh, they, you know, I love that song and mm. the story because it's like has human connotations because mm. she's half like sort of half human, half troll mm-hmm. is a changeling. Um, but it also has like troll associations, mm. uh, and then it's like her motif that she sings. Oh, it's really cool. cool. Um, so yeah, who is the Mountain King? It's a yeah, great. Story. I want to write a story about um, the Hall of the Mountain King. Yes, and listen to that story, try and channel that tone of the song into yep. this yep. little snippet of a world. Yes, very cool. I like that. Yes. Mm. Okay, you go. I wasn't prepared at all. Oh, I, you did check your phone I, like 30 have, seconds ago and then probably I, forgot. I'm a fish. It's I, one of those days. So I've been playing a lot of Magic the Gathering. Oh, um, really? I know. Yeah. What's ha- that? I, I, don't, I don't know. I it's don't a, think I've heard it's of a that cards, game. It's a cards games. Like, you like, like poker? It's like poker. 
Um, okay. It's exactly it's one to one with like okay. money and the gambling. So in Magic: The Gathering, the the fiction of the world is really interesting because they you know they jump between these different planes of existence all the time, these different worlds, mm-hmm. um, sort of parallel universes, I suppose you could say, um, all of which have the same magic system, and that's like the one unifying thing. They can be vastly different, usually fantasy, sci-fi, you know, fluid distinction between those two worlds. Um, and then it's like, how does this culture interpret the five-color magic system? Mm. And so I thought it would be really fun to make a series of worlds that were all linked by having the same magic system. Ooh. And, like, interpreting a magic system through multiple cultures. Beautiful. In these different worlds uh, and how they're connected um, would be cool. Even if we could take a magic system from a world we've already made, pick it up, plop it into a different world and see how it changes it. I like that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So that that was my first idea. It's just like, I was thinking about magic and how cool it is. Like, you know, they have like, oh, in this world, all of the factions are two color factions, you know, the, Mm. the Golgari green, black or whatever. The Rakdos red black. Um, yeah, I'm building yeah, a Rakdos deck, deck at the moment. moment. Yeah, um, and the uh, then you get to other worlds where it's like, oh, the factions are monocolored and some are multicolored. And I was like, that's such an interesting like idea that you know these different cultures place importance on different kinds of yeah, magic. That's really even cool. though they're all drawing from the same sort of sources of magic. Totally, I, I love that. I saw a post the other day arguing that. Well, technically, considering um, how prominent life and death is in society and stuff like that, necromancy would be the most prominent form of magic used. Yeah. Whereas in other cultures, they vilify it. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of different, how different cultures interpret different. Yeah, types I, of magic. I, yeah, I think I saw a similar post talking about like ne- we all know that you know necromancy has its its benefits and its mm. uses, and uh, but then um, uh, like. In D and D, the enchantment magic, like mind control magic, mm. that's the messed up one. Yeah, because it's consent breaking. Yeah, like, completely removing consent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's whole... really like that's a fun character idea. Just playing an asshole. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's most parts. That's, that's um, you, you yeah, right? Yeah, um, using charm person to flirt with someone is not cool. No, it's gross. No, gross. Um, uh, yeah. So that's that's my my first that's idea. Cool. I really like that. Mm-hmm. My second idea is originally inspired by a song, but it's going to loosely affect the mm-hmm. story itself. Um, it's the idea of a steel desert. Ooh. So I was originally listening to a song I love called Hard Times by Paramore. Mm-hmm. Love that song very much. And I just have this image of a desert where the ground is just steel, these jagged uh, shards jutting out of the ground Ooh. made of different uh, metals and just a blue sky, just this silver metallic landscape stretching off onto cool. the bright blue sky in the distance. But Hard Times, despite it being like a, a song about really struggling, yeah. is super boppy. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I imagine this this landscape that's just so harsh and you're absolutely fighting to just stay alive for another day. Mm. But, but you're it's giving it also all. kind of like like a cool aesthetic yeah and like 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 a really cool old-fashioned going on there like you're suffering but you're gonna have fun when you're doing it that's cool um i like that steel desert the steel desert Mm. that's wicked there you go it's um yeah like the the vibe of like it's we're struggling but we're putting our all into it yeah where you know it's it's a fight worth fighting Mm. Mm. totally very cool my Your second turn. one. I don't have a good memory, so I have to look at my phone every time, and that's normal. But my that's, thumb is too sweaty because it's so hot. Okay. This could be related. So this is interesting that we just started talking about the different, like, D&D schools of magic or, like, 
general sort of wizardry ideas because I thought about divination and fortune telling, that sort of stuff. And I was like, if it were real, it would be the most valuable form of magic. Oh, for sure. Because blowing someone up with a fireball is whatever. I haven't talked about this. I haven't brought this to the podcast before, have I? A world where the most important... No. Okay, cool. I was like, I just thought, and I was like, have I done this? No. Uh, Yeah, so the world idea is like the most important form of magic is divination i mean it it makes sense yeah um usually like in in a lot of like fantasy and stuff where they have divination it's unreliable or cryptic Mm -hmm. but what if it just worked there's a world where it's oh no i know what's going to happen i can predict the future i have like precognizance and uh, i'm super powerful that's cool yeah because if that was so, that would be, you know, fireballs, whatever. Necromancy, I'm not going to die. So I'm, Yeah, what if, like, those other types of magic just die out? Because yeah. it's just like, well, I know you're going to cast a fireball, so... It's not important. It's, it would be all, you know... There's just no way to fight that what, except being better at it. Yeah, it's all political. It's mm. all mind games. It's all... Um, oh my god, that would hurt stuff. my brain so much to yep. live in that world. Just constantly, like, yep. planning everyone's next It'd move. It'd be hard to think about. It'd, like, be, like, 12D chess constantly, yep. and yep. that's just your life. Yeah. Oh, but- you know, for once, I'm glad I don't I live in this world, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> comparatively much, much better. Much yeah. easier to vibe Ugh. not being um, precognitive. for a bit. Yeah. Yes. What are we thinking out of those four ideas? I don't know. Yeah, they're all really good I'm ones. I'm not leaning towards any just yet. Yeah. Um, okay, why don't we strike some from the table? Mm-hmm. I'm not feeling the whole of the Mountain King for this one. We should do that sometime. Though. Sometime. That'd be really fun. That's another one for yeah. down the road. Yeah. That road that we haven't got to yet. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, what if, what if we saw divination as white magic? Well, I, I don't want to directly draw the yeah. magic the stuff. I wanted to c- construct right. a magic system, uh, but we could do divination as one of the aspects of this magic system well i feel like i really oh sorry you have an idea oh i was just thinking um i don't know uh the above world has been on my mind a lot mm. and it's like we've got teleportation magic in mm. the above world or like transportation magic uh and then we could have divination magic uh as another part of that world that's cool and that could be maybe if we do a third magic type mm. that could be the three magics that we put into a multiverse sort of thing interesting could be cool and the steel desert could come in there as one of the worlds yeah totally i feel like the idea of um the magic as mm-hmm. in the card game yeah the different uh building a magic system and interpreting it different ways it feels like it needs to have its own episode like bespoke stuff that isn't being tampered by other ideas you know yeah, what i mean possibly. it feels like it it Do- would it, it's such a uh, a complex idea already. We would have to come to it with, like, here are the ideas for the magic systems uh, that we can structure and lay together. Yeah, I feel like yeah. trying to bring in another idea would complicate it too much. It yeah. feels like it works best in isolation. So why don't we try and do the... I've forgotten it already. Your idea. The uh, prediction magic. Yes, um, divination. Divination magic. Cool. Maybe the still desert's in there somewhere. Still desert could be in there. Maybe, okay. Maybe still desert's part of the big trees world is somewhere off in the distance. I was thinking if we did this, so I think the idea of the other forms of magic dying out is really interesting Mm. um, because then what we could say is like the, um, oh, completely zoned out. I did the same thing you did. What's wrong with us? Yeah, I don't know. Brain no work. There's something in the air tonight. So the steel desert (laughs) maybe... um, that's most of the world, you know, or like a mm. big section of it. And that's like the remnants of 
all the other magic messing up and everyone goes like you know destruction magic that's sort of like fire magic and everything that levels these worlds that changes mm. the world into metal and everything that's bad we need to go full democracy mm. uh using our psychic magic our wow. prediction future magic so that we don't fight anymore we debate interesting yeah. i i i feel like maybe all those magics of um invoking things and necromancy yep. this life and death and nature mm. it when people stop using it it just faded away until yep. all that was left of this world is this sharp husk cool. they, they live in this big um metallic spire of a city yeah and the, the, they've um, and- they've allowed or i guess not allowed but when you know the fall of magic mm-hmm. um, in the great you know war or something. Maybe not a war because we, we do like that war. a lot. Maybe I'm, it's, I'm sick of war. I'm sick of war. We do God, so many wars. War is ugh. it's lame. God. Maybe it was just like we failed to predict that this was going to happen. This natural mm-hmm. disaster. This natural magical disaster. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you know, nine tenths of the population are gone. Oh. And now we're all that's left, and we know that we have to lean heavily into prediction magic Mm. to be able to predict another cataclysm like this. I I even feel like because we're we're going down the path of prediction magic is always right, I feel like saying that it failed this time doesn't quite... No, no, I I mean, like, no one listened. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. that's more more what I'm leaning towards as well, that that all the people saw it coming and were like, We can do something else. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. We're like... Uh, or or didn't maybe um, didn't un- fully um, accept the consequences of that. They're just like, cool, divination becomes the only type of magic. It's the best one, so I guess that's fine. Yeah. So this, this then, like these divination focused mages mm, were like, the ones well, we can't stop it. this from happening because we will come out on top. Yeah. But so we just want to tell anyone it's going to happen. Yeah. So yeah, that's so interesting. Divination magic does feel oddly like a, a pompous. Yeah. proper type of magic it does like a yeah of course we're well, better it requires you know being at least sort of smart there's or believing right- that you're there's, smart there's a righteousness about it i think oh well, then i told you so yeah or, or even because divination is often so linked to religion yeah um and this idea of i was chosen by a god yeah. to see the future yeah i know what is going to happen yeah it's usually a divine power mm. do we want it to be have that association in this world? I don't think so. Mm. Maybe once it was. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. how it started. But now they're like, we're more interested in the great interpreters of mm. the readings that we've had in the past and how we can learn from their theology or their, their they, ideology. They became their own gods. Yeah. Yeah. Just have created this cycle of them feeding off themselves, off the past generations of interpreters mm. to the point where they're just, just this. Okay, that's cool. I'm, just, I'm thinking of the city. Cycle. Yeah, there's this, um, you know, the huge steel metal carnage desert. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything's been like, you know, it's, it's like metal uh, dust. Yeah. It's, it's like the sand. Like, um, like that thing when you do science experiments in class and you mm-hmm. get the, the iron filings yeah. that, like, yeah. yeah. It's all that, so it's horrible to touch. Oh my god. Ugh. Um,. But, imagine beaches made out of that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the world, uh, or, or at least this part of it, mm. you know. Uh, 
And then there's this city that's like a tower rising mm. above it with like maybe like branches reaching out, sort of like the steel tree sort of mm. thing. Um, and this place runs like clockwork because everyone knows when things are going to happen and yeah. they can sort of precognate. Hmm. It is kind of like the... I um, was literally thinking the same thing. Yeah, it's kind of like the other um, well, apotheosis world. Well, maybe this is it how they be began. It could be related, yeah. Uh, my, uh, this idea that, well, I mean, they just knew how things were going to happen and that was just a part of their culture for so long. That, that they forgot that they needed to know the past. Yeah. So if they lost that ability, they lent too heavily into mm. this. I guess it's not magic then. You know, we said that that was sort mm. of a biological social thing maybe it becomes biological yeah that yeah. The, when you're exposed to magic for that long for so many generations it just becomes a part of you yeah it well that's you know magic is the only it's just what we can't explain mm. they can explain it now they understand it perfectly yeah it's not magic anymore it's just the way of things it's just the world that's cool <gasps> this is kind of scary and then like after a, a while so like scary. yeah when we described the apotheosian planet mm -hmm. it was very pastoral and beautiful and stuff mm -hmm. so i think they get to a point where everything is fine yeah like things are you know they can yeah. go back to like dealing with the fact that their planet is screwed over mm. they saw far enough in the future that they were like well we get there eventually yeah so we know how to do it yeah suffer through this apocalypse yeah. well quote-unquote apocalypse yeah thousands of years because it'll be fine eventually eventually everything will be okay oh that's awesome that's really cool okay Ooh. and you know eventually they dismantled this tower city mm. and uh start to work like agriculture and stuff because they can see that that's the way mm. um okay so what else do we know about we sort of know a bit about apotheosian history now mm. like before we talked about you know this is the origin story of the apotheosian planet what else do we know about that that'd be interesting like what are their cultural influences from these other you know forms of magic um that still mm. like stick around because you know i guess we what caused it was it like a big explosion, maybe... What What do you mean? Like, the destruction of this yeah, world? Yeah, It first... feels like neglect. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Like, um, what... Well, in my mind, I think we're picturing it slightly different. I think you're picturing it like literally a desert with grains of metal. Yeah. But I'm picturing it like a sheet. Like oh, a, wow, like, okay. Like just a, a solid sheet of metal stretching mm. on. Mm. It could be really hot. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Mess with the atmosphere. Yeah. And mm. and you could imagine things like, uh, um, I don't know, glass, uh, rocks and mountains forming yeah. in the heat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. It would, it would get, so maybe they build this tower as like uh, an ecological like safe mm. zone where mm. it's like the good temperature for life mm. to be sustained here. And they know if it's going to work or not yeah. when they're building it. Same with like the Apotheosians we talked about in the in the you know, tens of thousands of years in the future. Yeah. Um, mm. Okay, so we kind of have this final state of a world made yeah. of metal. Yeah. And we kind of know the vague process of... Well, the, the vague beginning of it, of yeah. uh, casting out nature and life and turning to the future alone. Yeah. So we need to figure out how we get from point A to point B. Oh, like, that's interesting. So how does that world it's, it's itself change? It starts out as like a normal world and then as prediction these prediction powers get more powerful people are like well we'll just listen to them yeah and we don't have to work because they are able to like supply us with this oh i guess not work but like we only have to do the bare minimum mm. that we are told to do yeah 
because we trust that the higher ups are doing this and then people start to like yeah neglect the world around them and eventually these tower people get to the point where they're like we are at a crossroads what we've been doing so far we know will lead to the destruction of our world Mm. but we know eventually as well the world will be a better place for Mm. us specifically everyone else will die or we can decide to change what we're doing now and save the world which they don't they lie to everyone and say destroy the planet Mm. they say replace all of the mountains with the desert uh, they say oh, this uh, is the this is the way to survival. Yep, steel desert. And I guess they're not entirely wrong. The planet survives. Yep, they just kind of lose themselves along the way. Yeah, they they um, yeah, it's a, an interesting sort of moral conundrum where it's mm. like, eventually we make a perfect society where we can predict the future and keep ourselves safe and live in harmony with the world. We have to go through the ringer first, put ourselves through the survival situation, and only the greatest will survive. It's it's a terrible way to think, and it's mm. how a lot of people, I think, think are like, oh, you got to suffer so you can learn. Mm. And it's like, why can't I be supported so yeah. I can learn? Yeah. And there could Absolutely. have been a way for them to do that, I'm sure. They could have taken in these, like, because I'm sure they, like, think of the peasants as mm. lowly or whatever. They could have taught them. They yeah. could have had education and stuff. And they saw a future where they were equal, and that's not what they wanted. That's not what they wanted. They were like, there are too many people in that future. Yeah, and, and we're not, not on top power. anymore. Yeah. Um. So I, I, I kind of want to know, yeah, so do you think this original world was a fantasy one? Was it slightly more modern? I feel like almost yeah. in the middle. Well, there's, it's sort of like an alien mm. world because we know the apotheosians are, are like very alien, kind of grey. Yeah, um, and almost spiritual. Definitely not fantasy is mm. the vibe. It's not like European inspired fantasy, but you know, it starts off as like a survivalist culture where they're just like living, and from the beginning they have this sort of essence of precognates that mm. people who can like predict things before, and then they start to like have more of those people and it Mm. becomes more culturally important there are other forms of magic as well that get forgotten Mm. and they the precognate people these these psychic people are like we want to get rid of that Mm. because it it's a threat Mm. you know this necromancy this um destruction magic this natural magic yeah it's all a threat to us and that's Mm. why you know the world gets steeled over and everything and they are this is interesting they know they have to remove death unpredicted death that's what causes necromancy right Mm. people who die when they're not meant to, mm. when no one is expecting it, and then people want to bring them back. Whereas in a society where you can predict when death comes, everyone's prepared for that. Yeah. You know when it's going to happen, and so you don't need this like necromancy to bring them back. So that's why they're like, we're going to kill everyone except us. Oh. We've got to control when it happens, and the best way to do that is to just get rid of that's everyone. Because we can't watch everyone at once. There are too many people for us. You know, it's beyond our limits. I can imagine them forming like organizations and stuff mm. that tell you when you're going to die yeah and how you're going to die so yeah. people just kind of get, get used to it and, yeah and uh, it, then after like they come up with this very complex plan of how to slowly thin out the population yeah of otherwise they would be uh they would be fought back against yeah if they did it too suddenly yeah so they're like okay we're going to inform people when they're going to die 
were going to tell them that uh, you're limited to having only a certain amount of children right. to save resources for the future. And so our also, can thrive we know that if you raise three children, the third child will have issues. Like, mm-hmm. they lie. They yeah. say, like, your third child will have issues and eventually become a criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're only allowed to have two children. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to kill your second child mm-hmm. uh, because we know that this will happen mm-hmm. and the trauma will actually make this child stronger and stuff, mm-hmm. which they know is not true. Yeah. Um, that's okay. So it's just this this horrible origin for mm. the Apotheosian world. Of... I think the Apotheosians at that point aren't necessarily a bad people. No, no. Which is, they have a horrible history, yeah. which they've forgotten. Yeah, they forgot, They don't have it anymore. <laughs> it's not their history anymore. Yeah, because I'm sure that they started recording things after the Tower moment. I'm sure that mm. they were like, all right. We have reached the tower. The world is ours now. Destroy the history. Yeah. Destroy um, the history. So future can... generations can never know this. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Horrifying. <laughs> what have we done? And I think that what's interesting is the Apotheosians can only see their own futures. Mm. Um, they only know what they're going to do. Mm. Uh, you know, our modern Apotheosians, mm. the one from the last episode. It seems like these precognate people before them could see the lives of other people yeah. and could see larger. So not only have they forgotten, they don't know how to remember the past anymore, they also have limited their power. Mm. It's gotten, like, smaller. Well, it seems to me, like, at some point, um, nature comes back a bit. Because, yeah. I mean, in the original story, they're... they're um, golden fields of wheat. Golden fields of wheat. Yeah. Uh, so maybe by forgetting the past, yep. they started to let old magic come back again. Yeah, I think so. They accidentally did, and yeah. and it started to limit their own powers. But yeah. by that, they've started to flourish again. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe this kind of beautiful. Oh my- it's kind of yeah, the, 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 yeah. It's, it's weirdly like there was an era of the the people of the planet being terrible, tyrannical rulers, but mm. their descendants who, you know, still carry the guilt of their ancestors for doing a genocide on their own people, Mm. they don't remember that. And Mm. so they're living guilt-free and have started to, like, become one with the land Mm. and make reparations Mm. unwitting, like, unaware that they're making reparations. It's it's really interesting then, um, because I think we can't, with, with any group of people, not every single one of them would be driven to such tyrannical and bloodthirsty rule. Yeah. But the thing is, some of them will see that their generations in the future will get to forget this. That's true. And so when you're when you're born partway through this and you're a part of a society whose cause is so disgusting, the best thing you can do is just to help it happen faster so you yeah. know your children's children yeah. can live peacefully. They won't with, have to do they that. They won't have to remember this. There's Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that's, that's yeah, sort of like no one is evil. There aren't evil mm. people in the world and these aren't evil characters. Mm. It's 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 just the culture around them mm. making things acceptable, making things necessary. Yeah. Um, um, it, it, part of this is reminding me of a video game, uh, We Happy Few. Mm. Do you know it? I've heard it. Of it. it was very big a while ago. It. Yeah. Um, where this is going to be spoilers mm-hmm. uh, for a little bit, but um, based not too much it's i think it's set like just after world war Two. okay and this small town somewhere in britain was invaded by germans mm-hmm. um and the germans demanded that they send all the children under 12 years 12 or 13 year old with them mm. they were going to be sent back to germany okay and um i never got to the end of the game but i think they 
the town agreed to it and sent all these children away only to then later learn that they were they all died yeah. or they figured out what was actually going on. Right. And so the people created these the happy pills. Right. Which basically uh, made them forget what happened because the guilt was so overwhelming. They just couldn't, their society fell apart. Yeah. So they needed to make the entire society forget so they could keep going. Apotheosis is a really interesting example of like that, what you're talking mm. about, the the lengths that we go to, mm. the lengths that we feel like, even in the original Apotheosis story, the lengths that they went to to keep them their hands clean of mm. murder, like they don't kill people, it's yeah. against their ethos, which yeah. I think comes from the fact that they once killed a whole planet. I, like, they're unaware that it's part of their culture, but they, they've passed it on, yeah. that they don't kill people. It's almost like a subconscious yeah. guilt that's still yeah. with them. They, they just allow people to die, but they did it in such a way that one member of the, the original party of mm. the original um, thieves, uh, heisters, uh, goes away and makes it safer for them yeah. um, by learning the secret and being able to pass it on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the lengths that you go to um, for survival, the things that you're convinced are necessary. And this I, is a really wonderful example of that. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to know what the rest of the galaxy, the other populations out there know of this world. Yeah. How... How they view it, because um, uh, to bring this down a little bit, elements of this are reminding me of the history of Cambodia, which I'm very yeah. passionate about. Yeah. The the, the self genocide. Yeah. Um, but one of the things about that that really catches me is that lots of people don't even know what happened. Yeah, it's tragic. Yeah. Um, it's, it, there's um, and I feel like similar things could have happened with the Holocaust if we didn't, mm. you know, if, if the world didn't become uh incredibly involved in the Holocaust when these terrible atrocities happen, people are destroying history. And when it's destroyed, it's gone. Like it's, it's effective an effective, horrible fascist method yeah. that gets rid of um, evidence. We, we'd pull right now, but I think about Ernest Arnus a lot Yeah, that, well, by its definition, we're not allowed to repost yeah. anything. And while in this era, mm. um, everything ever will live on through the internet. Yep. But Unus Arnus won't. They were trying to make something. It's that literally would going to die. When I die, it dies with me. Yeah. And that's really interesting. It's really it's fascinating. History without technology is just a part of you, and it yep. history dies with you. We've yeah, we've grown up with technology where things are permanent, mm. and we're so used to like. Like I remember really attached to permanence. a while ago, there was a character I mean, years ago mm. I, when I was younger, I had a character in my head and mm. I couldn't remember their name from something that I was writing. And I went to Google it because I was like, oh, I just need to reach into the mm. third section of my brain that holds infinite knowledge, mm. Google, uh, and find this thing. But I'd only ever written it about it on paper. Yeah. So it doesn't exist. It's, it's knowledge exist that anymore. exclusively existed in my head and I could never find again. And, and, and it's, it's weird how, how heartbreaking that can be. Yeah. I think we're so entrenched in permanence. Yeah. That something being temporary is very upsetting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I think like, death really affects. Mm. Um, I, I, I'll be interested to see yeah how our, our generation handles death more. Yeah, considering we're so used to so permanence. Used to permanence, absolutely. But we're getting carried away. What do we think the rest of the galaxy thinks of these these people initially and then now? Well, they, we've said that you know it's a surprise when mm. they find out about this. Um, about the, I think it's like the apotheosis ability and the precognate ability, mm, the two different yes, sort of categories that we put them in. Um, 
because the precognates would be able to be like, no, no one's ever going to find out about us mm. because we can, we have people dedicated to predicting if people find out about mm. us. And surely there are some holes in that net of, of things that fell yeah. through. Um, so there are like rumors, but the, the apotheosians keep private. They keep to themselves mm. and they, they keep like very secretive. Um, because, you know, we know in the story that it was a surprise when it's like, oh, you guys can see the future, but can't remember the past. Like that was surprising. Yeah. Um, so I guess that it's it's largely a secret from the rest of the galaxy. I, I feel like with these the precognates, precognates, yeah, precognates or nits, um, um, nits. Yeah, I feel like that makes that feels right. Yeah, the precognates. Um, there's almost I feel like there's almost a boastful element yeah, to it. Yeah, that's true. Because the thing is, uh, the thing is as well is that you can predict when someone's going to come and see your world. Well. People will still, even if you keep your society looking friendly when people show up, they're still going to notice how yeah. quickly your world is changing, yeah. how quickly everything is shifting. Yeah. Um, so I think they can, you know, they would be keeping track of if someone comes and attacks them and declares war on them, mm. but not if someone is scanning them from a distance. They're mm. like, oh, what's that going to do? Yeah, or, or looking at them and going that with how the age of this planet and stuff like that, there should be more trees than this. Yeah. Something is going on. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to declare war on them. I don't think any of that happens. I think the rest of the galaxy just goes, there's That's something going on place. there. Stay yeah. away from there. Maybe the just, they reason... They just sit back and let yeah. it happen. Maybe the reason that, like, they, they posed, the, the thieves mm. posed as traitors is because, like, this is... For all intents and purposes, this is a really weird trade planet. Mm. This is a really weird farming agricultural planet that everyone is a little bit like, mm. there are some top secret files somewhere that people have rumors about. Don't fuck with them. Maybe they could be really innocent or, you know, they're they're not, they're like pre-warp, you know, mm. they're not going through space at all. And then maybe even our main character, whose name I can't remember at this point, I'm afraid. Yeah. Maybe they were like almost an agent who was going in there to try and figure out what was going on. Yeah, that's cool. But, um, cause they were like this heist, you know, it was like, they were like, surely they have something hidden. Mm. If everyone's suspicious of these people, mm. but no one's been able to figure it out, we got to check it out. Mm. We've got to get in there and see what they have. And they find, I think in the story, they found out that they have these fuel supplies, mm. uh, deep at the center of the planet that they're not using at all. Because they know it's dangerous. They know it's dangerous. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I, I like this idea with the pre, the precognates that the rest of the universe just kind of unspoken quarantines them off yeah like everyone just knows you just don't go there yeah and in a way that allows it gives them the time the space to finish this job off without yeah. interruption yeah but i think it would be much worse if people actually approached them and tried to intervene yeah absolutely Unfor unfortunately yeah um especially because like yeah the the um apotheosian ability is passed by like eyesight eye mm. contact when they don't have don't have lenses in the mm. way so i'm sure there are stories of like People tried to attack, mm. and uh, the attack went really badly, and the one survivor is now insane because yeah. he sees the future and doesn't remember the past. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And he wasn't prepared for it correctly. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Mm. That's kind of beautiful and tragic. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Okay. I have to go to the loop really badly. Okay, well, let's stop here. Mm -hmm. Okay, goodbye, everyone. Bye. See you in 10 seconds. <laughs>
everybody and welcome to The Sky Machine, a collective world-building podcast about dynamic, fantastical and concise storytelling. I was listening to one of our episodes the other day yeah. and you said the intro wrong and you're like, is that right? And I was like, yes. And I hate my, hated my past self in that moment. It, I, I felt that, a fury wash over me that I've never felt before. I think that means I win. I think that means I gotcha. Not intentionally, but we get a lot of wins unintentionally. I don't know. Right? I don't feel like, that feels like a, just a lose on both A, a net loss. A net yeah. loss. Yeah, maybe so. Um, what was this episode? Oh, it was the four part. The Apotheosis. Apotheosis prequel. I, Apotheosis is my favorite world, I yeah, think. it's really cool. I just, I love the ones that hurt my brain. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a mind masochist. <laughs> yeah, it was, again, a fun backdoor prequel sequel, um, to mm. have these ideas and go, I think this fits in with what we already have and it was really interesting we sort of did a back and forth with the story writing yeah like we got the general pitch down mm. of all four stories and like the, the process that they would go around and then one person wrote one and then the next person wrote the next and back and yeah. forth um yeah it was good i think it was fun as well i found for me because um i i tend to lean towards environmental stuff like mm. real descriptions of the worlds and i think this one i really had to focus a bit more on people yeah and i think it was uh, i think you tend to really do a lot of really good action stuff yeah and it felt like it was the other way for you this time yeah and for sure it was just a nice little exploration of it was very interesting having yeah. to write like 500 words of a story mm. and i don't think i ever counted how many words mine were in but i was i had that in my mind i was like well i can't waste time mm. i need to move on it's a very small like scene mm. uh, in this process and i think it was a really like a helpful like it was a, a learning experience for sure and something we should probably do again yeah absolutely i really enjoyed to see i i tend to lean towards writing shorter stuff yeah that's true i i i don't know why i just like being succinct and just capturing a small moment yeah um yeah, but uh, mind you, at the moment, I'm slowly starting to work on writing a book, mm. and it's very much out of my comfort zone, because not different. only is it super long, yeah. it's a romance novel, which yeah. is not my area, yeah. which is entirely focused on people and not the environment at all, which is also out of my comfort zone, uh. and... So apparently I decided the first main big thing I want to work on is going to be something I'm completely not used to. I think that there's there's value in that, in like putting mm. yourself in an uncomfortable position or in unfamiliar terrain so that you don't just fall back on what's comfortable and what's yeah. normal and then don't go anywhere, you know. For You're sure. like, I'm in the wilderness mm. right now. I've got to keep moving. Yeah, and, and, and surprisingly that's worked. Yeah. Like I've had so many book ideas before. I've had heaps and heaps and heaps, but this is the first one I've actually felt super compelled to sit down and yeah. write. I'm already on the third or fourth chapter of it. Wow. And, um, and I'm like, I I just enjoy it. I think about it in my spare time heaps. Yeah. And I, I don't know. There's, yeah, I I think that's, that's a backdoor to a good piece of advice that yeah. if you're really struggling with an idea, just do something that you would normally never do with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, do we have any thoughts about the stories this time? I because we 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 came up with the idea of having four separate stories. I think after we recorded, yeah, because we started talking about well, we've accidentally created a long time period. How are we going to summarize this in a story? Yeah, and usually we go for let's just get you know let's not do that. I think mm. is is our this is another interesting thing of like our trend is usually like we'll just do one little snippet. And then it'll all come out in the world building, mm. which I think is valuable. I was thinking, I was talking the other day about like 
people don't want to read your exposition. People don't want to no. hear your exposition necessarily, which is funny because we're doing a podcast about that. About exposition. I don't think that world building is valuable. I think it is valuable. I don't think anyone should ever see it, which no. is really funny. Which is... Yeah. Um, but uh, it's a really good to do and then only show the tip of the iceberg so that it looks like... It's like doing an underpainting. Yeah. Bef- like doing the a, a base of watercolours before you go in with the acrylics. You should never yeah. see it, but it adds, it so, adds much so much depth. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's exactly the same. Like, And this is uh, the opposite of what we usually do. And I guess we still did the same thing because it was a long period of time. We mm. had to show this growth and we were like, how do we achieve that in one? And we were like, what have we did four? Yeah. And, but they were still like these tiny slices of yeah. time. Uh, and it was very fun to interlace things. Uh, there yeah. was a moment when we were recording the story that you realized something that I had written yeah. that you didn't pick up on when you first read through it. And you were like, oh, no. <laughs> I just, like, had a heartbreak in real time. Yeah. Um, and I had similar experiences when I was reading your things. Like, oh. Like, How could you do this to my character? <laughs> it really plays similarly to the game Microscope. Um, which ah, is an RPG, yes. a world-building RPG that I've really wanted to play with you. It's kind of the inspiration for this podcast. It's true, it was. Mm. Um, and we've yet to play it. And we've yet to play it because <laughs> it's so good. Um, but it's an anachronistic world-building, so you make different periods throughout history mm. not in order. You don't start at the start and then go through yeah. to the end. You can make a character near the end of their life and then make their backstory mm. and then kill them and then make more of their backstory, you know, yeah. their, their history as like a young person or whatever. And you like often will make characters that you'll just like offhandedly be like, oh yeah. And then Jill uh, is killed by the wizard's lightning. Mm. And you're like, oh, okay, who was Jill? And then you go and explore Jill and you're like, oh no, Jill's our favorite character. And she's offhandedly killed by the wizard's lightning. Oh no. What have we done? <laughs> Um, I played it with my partner and we did a sort of like a Twilight-esque teens with magic story. Very nice. Um, that was very dramatic. Um, and we just like offhandedly created um, this character's wife. And then she became the most interesting character because she was like working with the villain and mm-hmm. doing all this. It was really cool. Oh, um, very such nice. Such a fun, fun game. But yeah, that, that, it felt like that a little bit. Of yeah. Like, when you give up. The writing stuff in Microscope, when it's someone else's turn to talk, you can't say anything, mm. even if they're messing with all the stuff you've made. Mm. Um, and it's similar with what we were doing. Yeah, I think it was interesting as well, because not that this is a particularly different thing to what we usually do, but yeah. this world was very much about the landscape, not just the world or yeah. the society, but the landscape itself of our goal was transforming the landscape into this still desert. Yeah. And so it's still... It kind of feels like a panorama of that landscape changing from yeah. left to right. Yeah. So even though they're separate stories, they're just like, like those photos of taking a of taking a photo of like the same tree for all four different yeah. seasons. It's yeah. still the same thing. It's um, it's very much. I guess we have done four stories before with the um. Uh, the seasons, the seasons and, and that was a similar scenario where yeah, it was about the it landscape. Was about the landscape. The landscape is. Usually it's, you know, the fifth character. Mm. Um, but it's, in- it's the New York. Mm. Um, and you use it as like allegorical of the players and their, their mm. troubles. The players, I'm so used to D&D. Yeah. The characters <laughs> and their trouble. Yeah. Um, and it was yeah, very fun to do that in this scenario because it was like, how do we directly show mm. actions that lead to mm. uh, reactions in the environment? Yeah. Well, and, and in this case, it's more like the characters were the, 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 the NPCs in it. Yeah. The side characters and 
it's mostly about the landscape and you, you yeah. see that the sky changes from purple to gray throughout the world yeah. and, um, and the, the, uh, forests and everything fading away and turning to, to this vast steel desert. And- yeah. It was very fun making, it felt very earned mm-hmm. when we got to the fourth story and it was just horrible to yeah. exist in. Yeah. Uh, whereas like the first story is just pure delight the environment mm. isn't even that that big of a, a point mm. and that contrasts really well with like the environment is your biggest enemy mm. now because it, yep. it has been destroyed so thoroughly and like I, I think a big thing they teach you in writing is having the environment be motif like reflecting the feelings of yeah. the characters whereas yeah. in this way the feelings of the environment were reflected in the actions of the characters absolutely um I really love apotheosis. Apotheosis is, is cool. Just, yeah, it's just fun. I, I wonder what more we can do with it in future. In, yeah, because um, yeah, we we tried to carry a lot of imagery through it. I think mm. like I really try like we tried to pull the images of of wheat fields and stuff like that in the very beginning. Yeah, which eventually come back in the original apotheosis story. Yeah. And stuff like that. Um, the images of the the slowly turning grey, these long, yeah. elongated, creepy yeah. people. And the strange um, architecture mm. as well of the tower in the end. Yeah, and bringing the gold into it yeah. and stuff like that. And the mines as well being mentioned. Yeah, and, and then you've got that slow transition of then slowly breaking out of this society they've made for themselves and returning, like some of this old magic coming back. And it's yeah. interesting then going... It's going to be interesting then to see what that what that is like because now the apotheosis world almost feels like a transitionary period yeah. of what is going to become of them after all of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, now that they're like starting to interact with like other planets and yeah. stuff after their terrible experience. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. For sure. Um, I think we've talked about like what other worlds we could fit into this like galaxy mm. it would be very interesting to try and find oh for sure other places that we can slot it in to have like an interaction between stories we'll just make the marvel cinematic universe we are we're just doing crossovers with ourselves it's like part of me is like can the can the at the ants gonna try and invade this place i'm like they're very two very different aesthetics yeah but, but if we unless I, unless i know it's it's cool it's it's good to compartmentalize though yeah no no 100 yeah. percent. i agree it'll get too blurred um, and Apotheosis is so beautiful and so fun. And I agree. Like, I don't want to muddy that water. No, I don't think, even though there's part of me that's like, they're all connected. Yeah. I think it's just... It would just... be extremely funny to see the ants, which are all about, like, violence, and a- it's like a really action aesthetic with, mm. like, oh, we are the social manipulators of the Apotheosians. We can see the... F- oh, we've been murdered. Oh, well, oh, no. oh, oh, darn. oh, we've been oh, oh, darn. Oh, darn. Yeah. <sighs> Oh, no, um, I think some things are best left isolated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that we want to I don't to? know. Do you have any fun media you have been consuming recently? I just started playing Subnautica Below Zero. Oh, I'm thinking fun. about the ocean a lot and how terrifying and cool it is. It's so scary. You it's... said the word ocean and my stomach dropped. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's scary and huge and fun. Um, I wonder if that's a thing that, like, people in... Uh, nations that are bordered completely by ocean experience more definitely people who are landlocked are like oh the ocean i don't know like i wonder if it's or maybe it's even more terrifying yeah that's true because they don't know about it 
But I don't know. Being, I wasn't scared till I was out in the water, and I was like, "This shit's deep. This is bad. <laughs> yeah, bad. Yeah. Um, Anything under there. I lived uh, in a small town when I grew up, and there was like a river that was really deep mm. and murky. Any time I was floating out there, I was like, "There's a big dragon under here who wants to come and mm-hmm. eat me." Mm-hmm. Um, which is fun. But yeah, that's, been that's playing fun. Subnautica Below Zero. Uh, still early access, but very fun. Wonderful. I, I just played a video game as well called Tiny Bunny. Ooh. Which is a psychological horror game. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. I'm usually not much of a horror person, but the art style in it is lovely. Mm. It's, it's free to play at the moment because it's an early access, just the first episode of it. Okay. But it's, it's beautiful. I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, mm. It's just, uh, it's about a young boy and his family, like living in a w- winter wilderness and uh, a kid in the local town goes missing and this boy is, determined to investigate and it's just and they like he and his younger sister start seeing all these weird animals running around at night Ooh, and cool. it's really it's really really good yeah sounds fun. yeah i highly recommend it's beautiful it's called tiny bunny it's on steam and it's free at the moment awesome so. uh i don't know if i've mentioned it before but i just finished i didn't do a lot of reading because i'm a stupid but mm-hmm. i managed to finish i managed to finish a few books lately actually but i just managed to finish the dream quest of velvet bow by, Ooh, uh, that sounds familiar. I think I've mentioned it before. I think I've yeah. seen it on I'm, I'm Actually. Oh, really? <laughs> Probably, Wow, yeah. that's crazy. It's by... There's also the dream quest of Unknown Cat... No, Unknown Catath, Unknown something. Mm. So, Dream Quest of Elbow is based off of a H.P. Lovecraft story. Mm. H.P. Lovecraft, world-renowned racist, um, oh. anti-Semite, incredibly horrible person. Okay. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Weirdly... A lot of you can watch a really good um, H Bomber guy on YouTube has a really good why people marginalized people like H B Lovecraft mm. series uh, video. Um, it's like an hour long. It's spot on, top notch. Mm. Anyway, a lot of marginalized people flock to H B Lovecraft. They really like his work because he uses otherization and foreignness as allegorical uh, in these monsters in these mm. these horrible otherworldly entities that are like completely terrifying and stuff but a lot of people who are marginalized and are otherized are like oh no that's white supremacy and yeah, that's that's like oh. w- i can see the exact sort of same effects that hb lovecraft is so terrified of and he was a white supremacist so he accidentally like leaked that into yep, it absolutely <laughs> it's it's this weird um like inverse where like a lot of gay people a lot of people of color mm. love hb lovecraft so i have this and i have um i haven't finished it yet but the ballad of black tom is a H.P. Lovecraft story that was written by a black author. Mm. Um, and Velvet Bow is written by a female author about women's things. It follows a woman living in the dream realm. Ooh. Um, this is, I did talk to you about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, you did. Um, oh, yes. Mm. 100%. Yeah. Um, a woman living in the dream realm mm. whose one of her students is stolen by a man from the waking world. And mm. it's her quest through the dream world to get to the waking world to save her. Mm. Um, and it's a lot about like a woman's place in this terrible society and it's very allegorical of our society even though it's set in this sort of like old-timey setting it's Mm. like you can really see that and it fantastic book the dream quest developer highly recommend it Mm. um and yet the ballad of black tom is my next one and then lovecraft country after that which is about black issues but is written by a white author so we'll see how it is yeah um yeah i know uh it's just got a hbo series about it uh that was made uh inspired by it um, Lovecraft Country that I have heard mixed reviews about. Oh, yeah. okay. Mostly good, but some people being like, eh, not really. Okay. Uh, so we'll yep, see. Yep. Um, um, I uh, just in the last couple of days have really gotten into a musical called Willow, mm. which is like um, uh, like 
tiny independent group wrote this musical set in America about um, this old willow tree and different relationships that form and break around it. Mm. And it's beautiful. It was written by a 16-year-old, I'm pretty sure. Wow. And it's it's um, it's set in this town that is like a multimedia um, collective storytelling project. So cool. there are two musicals set about it, like over 300 short stories oh um, and songs and, uh, and plays and everything, and it's in- incredible. Mm. I'll put a link to all the stuff, uh, but I just started listening to it. I, I heard about it through TikTok. Yeah. Um, and this musical is really lovely. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's got like a beautiful retelling of um, queer relationships mm. and stuff like that. It's, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's lovely. I should get into that. You should. It's very cool. It's very nice. Uh, all right, unless you have any tips and tricks about writing, I think we covered a few in talking about the story. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. I um, your uh, writing prompt for today is Mike and Oid. Because <laughs> I'm looking at a Mike and Oid mini over there. Do you mean Mike and Nid? I haven't. I, I haven't wanted to correct you, but you've been saying it wrong. I, pr- I Mike and I sounds cool. It, it does make more sense, but I think they were named in the eighties when people didn't know things. Okay, then why don't we rename it? Then? They're Mykonoids now. Thank you. Um, no one knows what that is. Little mushroom people. Okay. Little little mushroom babies okay. that believe in pure joy. That's, that's the whole experience. I love my it's, They're pretty so cool. Cute. Very nice. Yes, I have two that I've set up at a job interview on a table. I was just painting some minis. So. Yeah, oh, very nice. What's your word? Uh, art string. That's I was going to go with that as well. Yeah, there, there might be a ball of string on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, wonderful. Thank wonderful. you so much for listening. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Apologize. Your visions will be true, Harold Locke. And say that clearer. Oh heck, I didn't even realize. Did you not? I didn't realize. <laughs> oh, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> this is why I was like, well, it's got to be over a long period of time. Oh my heart. Yeah. This is why when I said I have to combine the accent I just did with the voice I was planning. Oh, I didn't even realize. Yeah. It's a reveal. Oh. I'm gonna say that. Could you? <laughs> I'm gonna say that line again. <laughs>